Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Kane, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Stand, Book 1, Chapters 5 through 15. Let's start the show. We meet another character, musician Larry Underwood, who's just hit the top of the charts with his song, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? His success has caused him some struggles, and he has abandoned L.A. to return to his mother in New York City. But there he falls back into his rock star ways. Back in Maine, Franny Goldsmith has discussions with both her parents about her pregnancy, and one conversation goes better than the other. At a facility in Atlanta, Stu Redman continues to be observed as the only person exposed to the virus who has not contracted it. We are introduced to Nick Andros, a deaf mute who has been beaten while in Arkansas, but makes a friend in Sheriff John Baker. All the while, the flu, soon to be known as Captain Trips, continues to spread. Very nice, Sean. Lots going on. Yeah. We had a big chunk of book to read, and King is continuing to throw us characters and throw us situations as we work through this pre-apocalypse part of the stand. Yeah, and I'm getting the feeling that this might be a long book because we're 15 chapters in and we're still meeting new characters. Yeah, so I assume you're reading it on a Kindle, Jay, and you don't realize that the book itself <laughs> is quite large. I've seen physical copies of it. Let's talk about Larry Underwood. We were hinted at this character. We had a couple of epigraphs of of songs, and I think they were Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, and then there's a Larry Underwood, and we were like, I'm not familiar with Larry Underwood. What What's this Baby Can You Dig Your Man song? And we get the Larry Underwood story here in, I think it's like three of the, three or four of these chapters. We spent a lot of time with Larry, specifically getting his background as to how he became a rock star and how he sort of hit it big, but a lot of time in New York City with him. I think it's important that we kind of acknowledge New York City itself here. Hmm. One of the things about New York City is that it feels really important to King because he, in, in as many times as he sets stories in towns in Maine, he comes back to New York City fairly often hmm. and in significant ways. And New York City is a really important place in the Dark Tower books. The interesting thing is like when I was reading the Dark Tower, every time we came to New York City, it vaguely reminded me of the stand because of these passages. And now rereading the stand, New York City and Larry Underwood's experience in it reminds me of the Dark Tower. So I kind of feel like my memories are sort of have come full circle in right. that regard. But I think that echo between those two perspectives on New York City just reinforces the fact that this is an important place for King and his stories and his characters. I just wanted to call that out. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. And I think it's also good to remember that we are reading about a New York City that in the original book would have been in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And in this book is supposed to be the early 90s. And we have to remember that this is a New York City that's not been Disneyified like it is today where it is a safe corporate vacation spot for you and your family. 
And King makes that pretty clear in this section. Like Eddie comes back from the glamour and glitz of LA where he can have drug parties on the beach overlooking the ocean with a bunch of beautiful people. And he's coming back to a working class neighborhood and just running into a bunch of different people that aren't like what he would see in LA. And he, it's not necessarily the safest place to be or the coolest place mm-hmm. to be. It's just, it's just a New York of the seventies and eighties. By the time this book was, or this edition was published, New York was, was starting to climb out of that sort of really dark, dangerous place that it was in the seventies. But King didn't make those types of more subtle environmental changes, or at least not that many. The New York that Larry Underwood occupies is basically the the same New York that King wrote about the first time he wrote these words. It's sort of stuck in the past, which means it's kind of a worse version of New York. It's an uglier, dirtier, messier New York. Don't get me wrong. I love New York. It's always going to be home to me in a way but it's also not the cleanest place it's a big city big cities are invariably messy and a little dirty it still feels like new york it doesn't feel like this is some bygone era version of new york but it's uh it is definitely a different new york than the one that you see on tv today right and i think king's trying to make that point to some extent like larry is a session musician he's just a workaday musician in la making ends meet by playing backgrounds guitar and bands and then by a stroke of luck he hits it big with the song he wrote and yeah that opens up la to him in a much different way you know agents are calling him he has access to easy drugs and he's got hangers on and he's able to buy a new car it's a Datsun, right yeah Ooh. But deep down, he's a working class New Yorker, and King is showing us him going home again, even though you can't go home again, supposedly. And I think he, King even makes reference to that in, in, in the book. Mm-hmm. He's able to, because that's where his mom is, and that's where he grew up. And we see where the apartment he goes back to is the same apartment. And he's treated not like the big L.A. star that he was, but you know his mom treats him like her son. Yeah. And his mom is not the, oh, I love you so much, honey. I mean, at one point she fills up the refrigerator and leaves a note for Larry and doesn't say I love you and doesn't get all caught up in emotions. And and King writes, she didn't believe in phony stuff. The real stuff was in the refrigerator and she knows what he needs, which is money, a roof over his head and some sustenance. Mm-hmm. Everything else is superfluous. And- yeah. She's not going to spend time on it. But we do know that she she does truly love Larry, but she also is the person who raised him and knows that he's kind of difficult sometimes. He's a little bit problematic in other ways. There there was even like, I forget how it's expressed, whether it's a, a moment in her thoughts or more of a narration, but where she's thinking back to his childhood and there was sort of a tipping point for her that is he going to turn into sort of a like a sociopath or is he (laughs) going to find a way to better integrate with the people around him and to her relief it was more the latter but he still has that that edge he's aloof in a way that really pisses people off yeah she she's known this and his other traits 
for his whole life. So when he comes waltzing back in, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, okay. I, I know who I'm dealing with. The prodigal and, son, yep. <laughs> right. Food's in the fridge. I'll see you later. Right. Even though he has escaped L.A. and trying to break that cycle that he was in, it's not too long before Larry goes out and finds a girl and then treats her badly. Mm. This guy is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he seems like a very real character that King has given us. We spent a lot of time with him in this section, and I feel like out of all the characters we've seen so far, he seems to be the most fully rounded. And again, that might be just because of the amount of time we have with him and because he's a talker and a thinker. Mm -hmm. uh, we've spent a lot of time with Stu Redman, but Stu's quiet and introspective and doesn't say a lot. And so I don't have a good feel for his character yet. But Larry, I totally do. Interesting that you say that, that he's kind of a talker. I couldn't help but see a lot of similarities between Larry Underwood and Eddie Dean. Ooh. Like, yeah, they they have so much in common. They both have that steel in them. And that's what makes Eddie able to become a gunslinger. But they both have chatterboxes. They both relieve stress by by just yammering on. Right. But they're both really smart and they know how to get things done. And they're really talented in, in artistic ways, too. One of them's a musician. The other one has his passion for wood carving and things like that. So, like, there's a lot going on here that unconsciously, intentionally, King's, like, creating parallel characters here. And we want to apply the Dark Tower lens. I mean, we could be talking Twinners. We could be talking other iterations of the same soul or something like that. But yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of overlap between those two. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about another character that we're introduced to, and we don't spend as much time with Nick Andros. He's only in one chapter in this section. I noticed a distinction, and I'm not sure if this is intentional for King or not, but we understand inherently just from the fact that it's New York City and also how King presents it that New York City is not the greatest of places and. There's bad things happening there. But King does not make the rural areas of the country any better, necessarily. So Nick Andros is a deaf mute, and he is in a small town in Arkansas, and it's not a pleasant place either. He gets jumped by four or five guys after having a couple drinks in a bar and really gets his ass handed to him and ends up in a jail, not because he's there overnight but just because he's got nowhere else to go and he gets picked up and the doctor takes him to the jail and and that's where he is but through his discussions with the sheriff there we learn that the guys in this town aren't that nice that they're good old boys and they don't take kind of strangers and especially small deaf mute guys they're gonna pick on because they're outsiders and so like new york city it's not a pleasant place either i think there's always this dark side no matter where you are in the country for sure. And and that's something that King has explored and, and we've discussed in the past, like Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot is is a small town and it's one that seems idyllic. If you're just driving through Maine and you drive through the Maine drag and Salem's Lot, you're like, what a beautiful small town. How pleasant it must be to live here. But King peels back all those layers and shows you the, the really nasty underbelly that exists there. And it's not because it's a small town. He's just saying small towns are not innocent of this. Yep. Anywhere where there are people, 
there will be some nastiness. And here we are faced with some pretty bad nastiness with Nick and his experiences here. I, I really felt bad for Nick because like clearly he's a character who has just some inherent struggles. You know, he's mm-hmm. a deaf mute. Luckily for him, he can read lips and he's really smart and resourceful. But in the first scene where we meet him, he gets into this fight and there's this really like detailed description of how his front teeth are broken. Mm. And I don't think it's a spoiler to, to talk about the fact that the world is, is basically drawing to an end here. Like everybody's going to be dying soon. I would hate to be, to find myself in need of emergency dentistry <laughs> just before the world ends and right. all the dentists in the world are dead. Did King need to do that to this character? I don't think he needed to. Like Rob Lowe didn't have broken teeth in the miniseries. <laughs> right. He just had you know, like all of his teeth. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, I was upset when Roland gets his fingers cut off in Drawing of the Three because I have some personal hangups with dismemberment. Sorry. <laughs> but he's also a character who I want to see at his full power. And that, but I understand the narrative reasons to do this. It does not augment our ability to, I don't know, sympathize with Nick or level Nick's advantages so that he can be, you know, there's more drama in his story to not have unbroken teeth. Right. It's just kind of wish like, this is like King kicking somebody when they're down. Yeah. And kind of literally here. And I sort of wish it didn't happen, or at least just don't mention that detail on the page. but. You had mentioned how Nick is obviously very smart. Mm-hmm. And I think King even has the sheriff mention that like, hell, there's guys in Arkansas who never learned to write. And here this guy is who was deaf mute, who must have been, it must have been hard to teach him to write. And he's able to read lips and, and write, and he's really good at it. But in addition to that smartness or intelligence, Nick also seems to have, and again, it's with one character. But the sheriff is wary of him at first. Mm. I think the second thing that Nick does is he's writing on a piece of paper and he balls it up and throws it on the ground and he's in a jail cell. And the sheriff grabs him by the arm and Nick's scared because he's like, what did I do? You know, and he says, clean it up. My wife takes care of the jail cell, so he cleans it up. But the conversation turns and I wonder, Nick seems to have some sort of charisma as well because the sheriff takes a shine to him right away Mm. and there's no reason for him to like. It's been made pretty clear that the sheriff has this this little speech that he gives. He's like, you're the second sorriest thing I've ever seen. The sorriest being this bobcat that we dragged, you know, 20 miles across hardtack. And Nick could tell, like, this was a rehearsed speech. and He's probably giving it to any vagrant who's come through. Mm-hmm. But within a few minutes, Nick has gotten coffee from this guy and become very sympathetic to him and, and, and friendly. And the sheriff is willing to say, hey, we can go after and arrest my brother-in-law if you want. So there's that charisma to to Nick as well. So even though I agree with you that he's got a bad hand that he's been dealt and getting your teeth kicked in is not great, there seems to be more to him than that, even in the little bit that we've got from Nick. Oh, yeah, for sure. Again, no spoilers, but the fact that you said Rob Lowe played him in the miniseries makes me think that he's going to survive. And out of the two characters in that chapter, there's only one coughing and sneezing at the end. And that's the sheriff. So I have a feeling like Nick's probably going to be around with us for a while. I certainly hope so. (laughs) 
I just want to make a, a quick side note here that Nick's story about getting into a fight with the locals is so much like the entire short story of Nona, except for the fact that Nick doesn't imagine a, a woman who turns into a giant rat at the end. But yeah, uh, spoilers for Nona. <laughs> Which, if you want to hear our thoughts on Nona, please subscribe to our Patreon and you can hear a bonus episode featuring Nona. Yes. In both stories, there's a guy who's like just sort of making his way through the world, goes into a diner, and the locals just, they're just offended by his presence. Yeah. And that very quickly escalates to a fist fight where it's a, a bunch of guys beating up one guy. I don't know which one he wrote first, but I mean, and, and this isn't the most original thing where right. you know, so the out-of-towner gets beaten up by the, the locals, but uh, they reminded me a lot of each other. The thing that gets me about that fight, too, is that it's at least four guys on one attacking Nick, mm -hmm. and Nick gets a lucky punch in, and then he kicks the one guy. And the one guy's like, he's not fighting fair. Let me at him. And I'm like, yeah, there's four of you. And he's not fighting fair. Yeah. Bully logic. All right. So we've spent some time with Nick and we've spent some time with Larry. The other character that gets a decent amount of time spent with here is Franny Goldsmith, who we were introduced mm -hmm. last episode. And here her story is revolving around the fact that she needs to talk to her parents about her pregnancy. And she comes clean to her father first. And her father just seems like a decent guy, right? Like, he's just like, yeah, I totally understand whatever decision you make. I can help you make a decision, but I think you know what decision you want to make. And I'll support you no matter what. And it's just a really nice scene that she has with him. It's emotional. They both start crying, I think, at some point, And they're out in the garden. It's just a very nice scene. Her mom, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Her mom seems out of the uh, Carrie White book of mothers of just sort of harpies that just are not pleasant people to be around. Yeah, it's interesting how vastly different these two parents are. And we learn a lot about their backstory, which is, of course, part of Franny's backstory. And it all revolves around how both parents reacted and changed upon the death of their son. Yeah. Franny's brother. And her father kind of receded into himself and sort of just became softer. Hmm. Like he just tiptoed through the world, but he remained kind. And I think he became even more close to Franny, his remaining child, because she was the only one. Right. Whereas the mom, she just became like stone. She just became nasty. And, and I think that's part of what Franny's dad changed too, is that his softening allowed room for more hardness in his wife. Yeah. And, and, and part of his basic strategy for his marriage was to just kind of go along with whatever storms his wife erupted into over the years, because that was the only way that he could survive with her. But in this one moment, he does take a stand. Ooh, I like what you did there. Yeah. He knows what is right, just like he's known what is right, or at least knows what he thinks is right for years and probably hundreds of arguments where he's backed down. But in this one, he won't because it, it involves his daughter yep. and her future. And he won't allow his wife to ruin 
his daughter's future. Right. With her kind of new self. Yeah. And she's more concerned about what does this mean for me? Yeah. And how am I going to be received in the town? She's not thinking about her daughter in that moment. And as you said, her father is. In addition to that, we see potentially how Franny's mom could have turned out in that we spend time with Larry's mom here too. Yeah. And she has a toughness to her, but her toughness is not self-centered, which is the toughness that Franny's mom seems to have. Her hardness, as you said, is all about me, me, me. And I think Larry's mom is more about, I'm tough because of the hand I've been dealt in life and the way I live and the way I am in New York City. But I truly love my son. Mm -hmm. I just don't have a way of showing it. Yeah. Whereas Franny's mom, you don't even know if she really loves her because she loved her son so much. She seems to have lost all of that when she lost her son and she doesn't have that element in her anymore. Like she lost the capacity to love anybody. Yes. Larry's mom kind of reads to me as somebody who's very pragmatic and tired. <laughs> the way she interacts with the, the outside world is that she's exhausted. Yeah. Justifiably, you know, she works really hard in, in a physically demanding job and, and it shows, you know, yeah. that she carries herself as like, yeah, all right, I'm kind of beat. Right. And here's my... My difficult son walking back into my, my <laughs> life. I, I guess I'll, I'll help him out how I can. Yeah, maybe she's kind of the middle ground. Uh, it's still not the most loving uh, you know, thing, but if you think of like Franny's dad as one end of this parental spectrum and Franny's mom as the other, Larry's mom's kind of in the middle. Yeah. Maybe a little bit closer to love and care, but still. So, Sean, is it time for some Dark Tower thinnies? I agree. It is time. Why don't you kick us off? Stu Redman is in a facility in Atlanta, and he starts to have some weird dreams mm. of cornfields for the most part. And at first, they seem to be very pleasant. And then we get this sort of demonic figure all in black with blazing red eyes coming through the fields and it jolts Stu out of out of his sleep and he's very scared by this image and this image is very much a presented to us as a man in black type reference i think mm -hmm. it's very clear that this person is dressed all in black and he's coming for Stu or whatever and and it's not in a good way and for me it seems very apparent that this is a man in black reference oh yeah for sure with everything we know about the man in black from the Dark Tower, yeah, this seems like pretty likely that that's what this is. Yep. And the other kind of interesting thing here is um, this is a dream that starts off much more pleasant. And um, Stu hears something that's like a, an old song or something like that. And he's yeah. like, oh, this is nice. And then it turns into this very scary thing. Right. Did you notice anything besides this sort of big obvious one that I, I pointed out? I did. One thing that I noticed that's, uh, uh, that I consider a thinny is a very scary echo of Susanna and her story. Mm. The young woman that, that Larry hooks up with and then immediately pisses off the next morning, yells all sorts of, of profanities at him, 
throws a spatula at his head and then curses him with, I hope you fall in front of some fucking subway train. Mm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, King, what are you doing? Right. That's uh, cutting it a little too close to the quick for me there when I think of Susanna. Um, Another thingy that I found is uh, a line that is the afternoon sunlight streamed duskily, the way sunlight falls into museums and halls of the dead. And when I read Halls of the Dead, I immediately thought of book three of the Dark Tower, where when Eddie puts his ear to the, the door that leads to the, the source of the beam, and he hears that this thing, like it just pops into his mind, and it's like all is silent in the Halls of the Dead, all is forgotten in the stone halls of the dead, et cetera, et cetera. And, and these echoes, intentional or not, they're there. Yeah. And King made this up. My research has not turned up anybody else writing these, this line of Halls of the Dead thing. Hmm. So listeners, if, if you know of, a, of another writer or a song or something out there that King borrowed this from, or, or if this exists somewhere in some other form, please let us know. But I'm pretty sure, like, I mean, on its own, Halls of the Dead, it, it's just a way of describing a mausoleum or something. But, right. but this, is, this is like word for word you know, kind of overlap. So. Yeah. And that phrase is just great. All is yeah. silent in the halls of the dead. Like that is a sort of a chill inducing line for me. Yeah. The last dark tower thinny I have is that Larry Underwood's father seems to have a lot in common with Bobby Garfield's father from parts in Atlantis. Yeah. Easy credit terms. Larry's mom said. That's how your father ended up bankrupt. The doctor said he died of a heart attack, but it wasn't that. It was a broken heart. Your dad went to his grave on easy credit terms. And of course, mm. Bobby Garfield's father is in a very similar situation. Yep. Never met an inside straight or something like that, right? Yeah, that he, yep, exactly. So, Both of these uh, single moms resent the fact that they were single moms and kind of, you know, made a version of reality that you know, was like an easy thing to, to grumble about. Yeah. There, there's, there's something to it. I don't mean to be dis dismissive. Like, like they're just making stuff up to hate their, their absent husbands or whichever reason they might be absent. But we learned like in Hearts and Atlantis that Bobby's dad did like to gamble, but there was a lot more to him than that. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's true of Larry's father too. We just don't have the, Oh, what what's her name from the the pool hall? Um, in Hearts and Atlantis, yeah, Alana, Alana, yeah, I think so, yeah, yeah. But so Larry doesn't have an Alana to tell him about his father and and set the record a little bit straighter. Yeah. All right. Well, Jay, recently we got a listener feedback from Rich, and Rich had said to us that he's really loving the shows. Um, I think he's still working on the Dark Tower episodes, so he might not hear this for a while, but he really loves the show, and he says that it really helps while away some of the longer hours. It's like being in a conversation in a pub, something I'm really missing at the moment. And that was such a nice compliment, Jay, because I think yeah. that's what you and I have been reaching for with our with our podcast, is we want this to be very conversational and like we're your friends talking to you about a book that you like, so... Rich, thank you very much for that, because that really uh, nailed it for us. Yes. Thank you, Rich. So, Sean, why don't we uh, get into our 
our new segment, Yucking It Up, in which we talk about the moments in this section of the book that were just really gross or just kind of rubbed us the wrong way because made us want to kind of, I don't know, like puke-worthy moments. Yeah. yeah, well, we get one right away with Larry Underwood when he returns to New York. Uh, we talked a little bit about what what New York City was like and how it's a dirty city overall. Uh, no matter how much you try to clean it up, there's always going to be something disgusting. And one of the first things Larry sees as he ride, rides into his old neighborhood is a rat eating a dead cat. And King Ugh. puts it as, munch, munch, just looking for something tasty. <laughs> yeah, I uh, captured that to talk about uh, in my own notes. And it was the thing that actually inspired the idea of this segment, the, the this gross out stuff this, that, that we're yucking it up with uh, with this rat eating a dead cat. Yuck, indeed. The one I wanted to call out was that when uh, Stu and his neighbors and friends are being flown to uh, the Atlanta CDC base and they're on that military plane, they're all in various states. And Lila is like, gets, uh, she gets, I think she gets sick. And and the, the there's a line that says, after a while, she threw up her grasshoppers and the chicken salad sandwich she'd eaten. Ooh. I'm picturing regurgitated green mayonnaise <laughs> all over the inside of this airplane. So, and and also just like pro tip, I, in my opinion, it's a good idea to avoid mayonnaise-based foods whenever you're traveling because you never know with mayo. Like, yeah. It, it, it could turn on you and you never know. Now, this could very easily have been in Dark Tower Thinnies because, as we know, Roland also was not a fan of mayonnaise. <laughs> yep. He definitely wouldn't order mayo on a popkin. No, that is for sure. So we already mentioned a little bit about Nick Andros breaking his teeth, but the fight that he has with those good old boys is very graphic and disgusting. And there's just those little details. So like there's the one guy with the class ring and he like mm -hmm. smashes in Nick's nose. And it like, I think King says it like was like a tomato burst. And I was just like, oh, that that's a little much. And then he breaks his teeth and all that stuff is gross. And the next day when Nick wakes up, like he has to make sure there's no blood in his urine and he can feel the stitches on his face. And he's in this jail cell that's also that is also described very specifically, right? There's yeah, there's beetles walking around on the wall and there's specific graffiti that he reads. It's just perfect King detail that really adds to the story. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's good, but it's kind of, kind of gross. <laughs> very gross. <laughs> Hence the yucking it up section. I love this new section that we have here, Jay, and I wish we had it for the first 80 some episodes of our show. <laughs> Yeah, things change for the better. Uh, just a reminder that we want to thank our patrons for continuing to support the show. They are getting access to exclusive Patreon content, including bonus podcast episodes. Jay mentioned one earlier. We did Nona, and we just wrapped up two episodes that are tied into the stand. One is on The Dark Man, a poem that 
that King wrote that sort of presages the man in black. And then one on Night Surf, which can be read as somewhat of a prequel to The Stand. So if you would like to check out those bonus episodes, please become a patron at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And uh, we'd like to give a specific thank you to Jason T., who recently joined our Patreon at the Gunslinger level. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, that's fantastic, Jason. Hope you are enjoying that extra content. Another note to our patrons, uh, we list the names of our top patrons on the support the show page of our website, two guys to the dark tower Well, Jay, it is time for fun stuff. Awesome. So we talked a lot about Jay, the different characters that have chapters dedicated to them, but King does another one of those sort of 20,000 foot views of the flu continuing to spread and how that spread goes. And mm. again, King just really sort of nails how that works yeah even giving us characters that we're only going to spend two pages with like the cop who's on vacation with his family and mm-hmm. just come back from disney world and are traveling back home through the country and all the people that they infect along the way and we learn so much about that family in just a couple pages that they feel like full characters even though king is just giving those characters to us to sacrifice very quickly later on yeah it's a testament to king's writing style and and ability because and if you look at it comparatively like we spent chapter after chapter after chapter just getting to know larry underwood Mm -hmm. and by proportion it's okay to spend like 10 pages meeting this cop and his vacationing family right and learning about his partner and the little squabble that they have about how it's impossible to go on a vacation with your family and actually enjoy yourself and the whole nine it's like it's all in there. That cop feels like a real person. And I kind of care about, you know, the fact that it seems like he's going to get the flu and, and die. So, and, and also I really love those moments when King just kind of jumps out of all the characters and just kind of talks directly to us. Yeah. The way, the way that he did in Wizard and Glass, the way that he did in Salem's Lot. You and I loved when he did those, those asides, like, and um or it's not really an aside but like when he takes that approach right it's just like let me just catch you up on everything yeah and he just writes those so well and and it's unfiltered through a character so it's like it's like getting the pure unadulterated uh (laughs) king right right and so they're great and this is one of those things uh and also this is the chapter that to make this a little topical when COVID-19 started hitting the news. King said, if you want to understand how pandemics work, read chapter eight of, of The Stand. Yep. So when I read this, I had that very much in the back of my mind. This is really good. One of the best chapters so far in the book. And it's making me sad. Yep. It's scary in a, in a different way than what some of the King's scary stuff is, right? Yeah. So uh, a fun stuff item that, that I kept coming across uh, in this whole section, but really it was more of a catching on to what King did when he did his, what I think of his low effort revisions okay. in this, this uh, version of the book. Rather than updating something like a cultural reference or the like to the, say, late 80s, early 90s version of that thing, he just says, 
things like 10 or 15 years ago or the old fashioned style. Yeah. So it's just like, okay, so you just add enough extra words to sort of explain away the fact that the thing I'm reading about is old or, you know, anachronistic in some way. And the thing that kind of really shined the light on it for me was um, when he was talking about somebody's haircut. You know, like 10 or 15 years ago, they, they would have called that haircut like the certain thing. <laughs> but that that's the haircut that that guy had. Really? <laughs> I'm not going to be bothered to research what ha- haircuts are called today. That would be silly. Yeah. Let me just say the haircut that they had back in the 70s. Exactly. He was wearing, I think there's another one where he was wearing a mesh t-shirt that was very popular 10 years ago. We get it, King. King did some other updates as well. And one of them is uh, a scene with Vic Palfrey at the beginning of chapter seven. Mm -hmm. And this was a scene that really sort of freaked me out in a fun stuff sort of way. Vic is going in and out of consciousness and also in and out of lucidity as well. Like he has the flu pretty bad and he's not making a lot of sense. But at one point, King says the room lit up. He saw the row of faces observing him solemnly from behind two layers of glass. And he screamed at first thinking these were the people who had been holding conversations in his mind. And I just could sort of picture like these very stoic doctors in their lab suits being sort of seen in the shadows behind this glass observing you. And if you were sick, that would really be very freaky. And oh, yeah. <laughs> Another fun stuff thing that I had was uh, Larry was now wealthy enough to buy a brand new car for the first time in his life. Yeah. So he heads on down to the car dealership and he buys a brand new Datsun Z. Ooh. And I'm thinking, fancy. I love that car. That's a that's a classic now, right? But then I started started wondering. This was uh, this supposed to be happening in 1990. Yeah. Yep. Right, and it's a brand new car in 1990. Datsun was no longer Datsun. Nissan had stopped calling Datsun Datsun, mm. and just called themselves Nissan everywhere in the world in 86 it's just like a little miss i guess from king but it could have been the nissan z or any other car really that right you know would have worked fine come on larry buy american <laughs> uh, well if you listen to our episode of night surf you might not want to buy a cadillac in this uh, <laughs> oh, time that's true but anyway i just wanted to call that out it's not a big deal but um i thought it was interesting like it didn't need to be brand new, or it could have been one of those old-fashioned dots <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I think both you and I pointed out this line, Jay. Uh, another instance of um, Franny's father had one saying, as rock-ribbed as Estonia's main Republican's philosophy, put not your trust in the princes of this world, for they will frig thee up and show shout their governments, even unto the end of the earth. <laughs> yep. I can't say that I agree with the sentiment, but I really love that this is like a, a foundational opinion of New England Republicans. Yes. It it just rings so true. Even even King's little tiny detail of saying frig. Yep. He's <laughs> like, I can't be cursing in I there. I can't curse. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the line that uh, King uses that when he's talking about how 
sometimes you just can't help but laughing in even the most inappropriate of times. And he frames it like this. Sometimes King Laugh knocks and you're one of those people who can't keep him out. Mm. That was cool. I, I like thinking of that uncontrollable laughter as King Laugh. Yep. Personification. Yeah. He nailed it. So I think we've determined that Larry Underwood seems to be a pretty cool dude. And we like him already. There's enough, even with his rough edges. Yeah. There's a lot to like about Mr. Underwood. But he says one of the things he wants to do when he's back in New York is watching the Yankees play and either beating up on the Red Sox or Cleveland. And as a Cleveland Indians fan, I was not a fan of that at all. <laughs> and it just took Larry down a peg in my book. So, eh, What can you do? For a change, Sean, I, I think I'm going to take us out on a very childish note. Oh, <laughs> thanks for cleaning it up a bit here. So I'm not the only one. I just really like this uh, line from when Vic wakes up at one point, he realizes he's got IV lines going into his arms and a tube in his nose. And, and then he's like, wait a second, something's jammed up my ass. And he's like, what in God's name could that one be? Shit radar. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about how he wakes up and he sees the, the looming silhouettes through the double glass or the, you know, the double mirror and freaks him out. And, and then he, but he's also dealing with the fact that he's, you know, got tubes going and in and out of every orifice and just like King, make it scary, make it real, make it fun. Yep. I dig it. All right. Well, that's going to be all for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand, Book 1, Chapters 16 through 25. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to... I don't like that. I don't like it at all.